me ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2 this evening. 1 Samuel chapter 2. God is serious about sin. He does not take lightly the sin of those who represent Him. No representative of God's is indispensable. It doesn't matter how big of an empire that that person has built for the work of God, everyone can be replaced. We might think that God would never remove a guy like Jack Hiles or Bill Hybels or Rick Warren because if He did, the consequences would be too great for His glory. In other words, God, we think, can't afford a scandal on that magnitude when one of His representatives have gotten too big. But that sort of thinking is oblivious to the bigger picture because God doesn't live just for the here and now. He lives and acts in light of the larger story. And here in 1 Samuel chapter 2, Eli and his family have been given charge of the house of God. They have become large in terms of perspective as far as uh, being a representative of God at this time. And yet God is not slow to remove them from a position of representing Him and to replace Him and His family with a whole different line of priests. Eli and his family have been given charge of the house of God. But that doesn't tie God's hands, just as it would not for any okay, earthly, think, think about it in, in terms of human perspective, but any earthly, we could say, Christian empire that's set up by some of these pastors or, or Christian leaders. God is not tied. He's not tied down in the sense that that He has to sustain and bless this family. The same thing is true with regard to Eli. He's not um, required to sustain and bless the family of Eli. Instead, for the sake of His own glory, He will bring those who trespass against Him to justice, and He has the prerogative to replace them with a line of priests who will know Him and who will revere Him. And that's really where the arc of this story is going in the first seven chapters of 1 Samuel. But we're just going to focus on the last part of, of chapter 2 this evening. So let me draw your attention to verse 11 where we will begin our study tonight. I'll read to the end of the chapter. This is the Word of God. Then Elkanah went to his home at Ramah, but the boy ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord and the custom of the priests with the people. When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servants would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. And all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. And thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, They must surely burn the fat first, and then take as much as you desire. Then he would say, No, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. Now Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. And his mother would make him a little robe and bring it to him from year to year when she would come up 
with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children from this woman in place of the one she dedicated to the Lord. And they went to their own home. The Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? The evil things that I hear from all these people. No, my sons, for the report is not good which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with men. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choices of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now, the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. You will see the distress of my dwelling in spite of all the good that I do for Israel. And an old man will not be in your house forever. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grieve and all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. This will be the sign to you which will come concerning your two sons. Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will die. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul. And I will build him an enduring house and he will walk before me, my anointed, always. Everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, please assign me to one of the priest's offices so that I may eat a piece of bread. Here at the end of chapter 2, you see that judgment begins with the house of God. Judgment begins with the house of God. And we see, again, these two contrasting uh, arcs or contrasting directions. One is the, the, the fall of Eli as God's priest, and at the same time we have the rise of Samuel. And the reason I say at the same time is if you notice as we were reading, we are reading about Eli and his sons, but then God would interject or the writer of Samuel would interject with this idea of what's going on with Samuel and how he's growing in the Lord. We'll talk about that. Okay, but, but you have these two different directions. Eli and his sons are falling out of favor with God and Samuel is falling into favor or coming into favor with God. So first, the fall of Eli as God's priest the fall of Eli as God's priest. The priesthood will not 
continue through the family of Eli. Eli has shown himself to be unworthy of God's work. This is the idea that I began with, that 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 no individual is too big for God to bring them low, to humble them, to humiliate them. Because God, those who are proud before God will be brought low. And this is what's happening to Eli. The sin of Eli begins with the sin of his sons in verses 12 through 17. We see first the worthlessness of Eli's sons. Notice in verse 12, now the sons of Eli were worthless men, or literally sons of worthlessness. That is, the way that you would describe them, if you saw them, if you knew them, would be worthless. A waste of skin. That would be a horrific description if it were talking about any Gentile. If God described the Philistines as worthless, that would be terrible. Or if God described the Canaanites as worthless, that would be a horrific description of them. But these men are Jews. And above that, they are serving as priests of Israel. And God says they are worthless before me. Notice the second description of them in verse 12. They did not know the Lord. The reason for their worthlessness is because they did not know the Lord. They did not have a relationship with the Lord. They did not know His Word. They did not know His mercy. They did not know His expectations. You want to make your life count for nothing? Live your life without knowing the Lord. If you want to make your life count, if you want to be uh, worthy of the calling, then you need to know the Lord. These young men did not. They also noticed thirdly in verse 13, they did not know the custom of the priests with the people. Now, it probably wasn't just they didn't know the expectations or maybe that they had no clue about what was going on with regard to the priesthood, but it was primarily that they didn't care about them. Right? They didn't know the Lord and they didn't care about what He demanded of them. Now, keep in mind that Hophni and Phinehas, Phinehas were not just tabernacle servants or even servants of the priests. But look at their role again in chapter 1, verse 3. So go back to chapter 1, verse 3. At the end of the verse it says, And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, doesn't say servants of the priests. They were priests to the Lord. They they held the, the second highest office, effectively, to the high priest. So so these are significant uh, positions within the work of God. An office... A, a, a position that required great dignity and careful attention, and yet they were worthless. They didn't know the Lord, and they didn't know the ways of the priests. So, first, their description. Second, their blasphemy. Their blasphemy. In the second part of verse 13 through verse 17, we see that they steal from God. They steal from God. Now, it's not that they take some of the objects out of the tabernacle but it is that they take some of the portion of the offering that belonged to God. Notice the second part of verse 13. When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest, the priest's servant, so servants to Hophni and Phinehas, would come while the meat was boiling with the three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and all that the fork would bring up, the priest would take for himself. And they did this in Shiloh to all the Israelites that came there. So, Eli's sons did not know the Lord, nor did they know the priestly sacrifice, or did they care. 
And so instead, what we have here is that they make up their own rules. When it came to sacrifices and worshiping God, they made their own rules. Now, God had demanded that the priests would earn their living. Part of their sustenance would come from the offerings. You remember this from our study in Leviticus. Maybe your your own Bible reading of the Pentateuch. You see that the priests earn part of their sustenance from, from working at the tabernacle or the temple. But some of the sacrifices were not designed to be eaten by the priests at all. They were to be wholly burnt up before God, wholly sacrificed to God, and the remains would be taken outside of the camp. But in this case, these young men are not just going against God's demands, but they're actually encouraging their servants to do the same. And so they have their servants blindly put a fork into the pot, and whatever he brought back, that belonged to the priest. I'm not sure if this was some kind of game or what. Maybe they had some fun with it. You know, which one of the servants can bring back the best cut of meat? from the boiling pot. You know, you, you can't look kind of like, um, you know, when you're bobbing for apples or something. You know, who can bring out the biggest hunk? But God was not amused. Sin of blasphemy. Secondly, the sin of defi- defying God's law in verses 15 and 16. The sin of defying God's law. Also, so so let me just let's go back for just a second. So what they were doing is taking a portion of the offering that was designed to be given and burned up to God, they were taking it for themselves to eat. That was the problem there. That's why I call it blasphemy. Secondly, the sin of defying God's law in verses 15 and 16. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who's sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat, only raw. And if the man said, Well, they must surely burn the fat first, and then you can take as much as you desire. Then he would say, No, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I'll take it by force. So the fat was supposed to be burned up and not eaten. Now, when, when I say fat, when the Scriptures are talking about fat here, it's not talking about the gristle that nobody wants. It's talking about the best cut of meat. It was to say that this best part of the offering belongs to God because the best belongs to God. It's supposed to be burned up. And so before that, the servants would say, hold on, hold on. You need to give some of this best cut of meat to the priests. And they'll take it. And if the sacrificer... It's amazing here in verse 15 that the sacrificer says, hold on a second. That's not how it's supposed to work. I mean, even the worshiper knew more than the priest with regard to how the meat was supposed to be taken care of. And notice what happened if the worshiper refused in verse 16. At the end of the verse, it says, No, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. So these are the words of the servants, probably by orders of Eli's sons. They're saying, No, you give it or we'll take it by force. The priests either didn't know about what was supposed to be done, or they didn't care. Or a little bit of both. They, they, they knew, but they didn't care, or they didn't know the whole law, and they didn't care. In verse 22, we see the high-handed sins of Eli's sons. We'll skip down because those intermediate verses are more about Samuel. Verse 22, Now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. To show how utterly wicked Hophni and Phinehas are, we're told that in addition to all these sins, 
they committed with the sacrifices, they're also committing adultery with temple, or I should say tabernacle servants. Now, it's not clear if they're committing adultery or immorality right there in the tabernacle or somewhere else. But whatever the case, this is, this is a great high-handed sin against God. This is saying, God, we don't care about Your standards. We're going to do what pleases our own flesh. And this, in fact, is what the pagans would do at their places of false worship. They would have sexual relations right at the pagan temple. And so Eli's sons very likely are bringing into the house of God the sins of the pagans. They are desecrating what God calls sacred. They are profaning what God has set apart as holy. They are profaning the office of the priesthood, the tabernacle itself, and all the objects that were designed for the worship of the true God. And if that weren't bad enough, they didn't care about the sin that they're committing. You see, in verses 23 through 25, they are unrepentant about it. When they are approached about this wicked, high handed sin by their father, they don't care what he has to say. In verses 23 through 25, Eli approaches them, and notice their response at the end of verse 25. But they would not listen to the voice of their father for the Lord desired to put them to death. They would not listen. And by now, having surveyed the sins of Eli's sons, we should not be surprised. They were introduced as worthless men who did not know the Lord or His priestly practices. They engaged in blasphemy, adultery, or at least immorality, and profaning the tabernacle. And so it's not surprising that they reject the voice of their father when he approaches them about their sin. But what is particularly striking is why they did not listen. Look again at the the order of words in verse 25 at the end of the verse. Why did they not listen to the voice of their father? But they would not listen to the voice of their father for or because the Lord desired to put them to death. Now, you would think that this sentence would be the other way around, right? The Lord desired to put them to death for or because they would not listen to the voice of their father. So, they wouldn't listen to the voice of their father, so God wanted to put them to death. That's not how the text reads, is it? It's the other way around. It is because we could reverse the sentence and say, because God wanted to put them to death, they would not listen to the voice of their father. Why would would the author of Scripture, why why would our divine author put it like that? Well, I think this is consistent with what we see with Pharaoh and what we see with Romans 1. And that is that because God had determined they would be judged for their sins. He gave them over to their sins. He, And in the words of Exodus, He hardened the Pharaoh's heart. Okay, Or in the words of Romans 1, He gave them over to the lust of their flesh to do what they desired. So it's not that God is forcing their hand that, hey, I want to put you to death, so I'm going to force you to sin. No, they're doing exactly what they want to do, just like Pharaoh. God's not saying, here, go into this evil because I need you to do it for the sake of my bigger story. But it does tell us that, that, that even the evil that happens within our own lives or within this world is not outside the control of our God. Do you believe that? 
that even the evil, not just the good, but also the evil, is underneath the sovereign control of God so that He can, if He determines, I'm going to put them to death, He can also bring about... uh, uh, Cause is not a good word, but He can permit that person to do the very thing that they want to do. He can permit them to do the sin that they want to do. That's what's going on here. Now, that doesn't make them uh, free or exempt from God's judgment. Hey, listen, God wanted to put me to death, so uh, you know they, they would not listen to the voice of our, their father, and so, therefore, they're not going to be condemned. It's like Romans, we've been seeing in Romans 1 and 2. They are without excuse. They still are accountable for their sin, even though God knew exactly what they were going to do. Same thing is true with Eli's sons. They are accountable for their own sins. But what the focus of this text is on is not primarily Eli's son. We spent the first part of this whole time talking about Eli's son. But really the focus is on Eli and God's rebuke of Eli. And that's in verses 22 through 36. God rebukes Eli. Now in verses 22 through 25, Eli finds out about the sin of his sons, particularly the immorality that's going on with the tabernacle servants, and he approaches them. Look at, look at verse 23. Why do you do such things? The evil things that I hear from all these people. No, my sons. The re- for the report is not good which I hear the Lord's people circulating. And then he reasons with them. In verse 25, he says, if one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. You, ha- you have God on your side if you, if you have a sin against someone else. But if a man sins against the Lord, you boys of mine, if you sin against the Lord, you think you can receive intercession from anyone? You think God's going to intercede for you? When you sin against the Lord, you stand condemned before Him. And so we could say about Eli in verses 22 through 25, very simply, so far, so good. Right? He sees the sin. He approaches them on it. He rebukes them effectively. He, he seems to be concerned about the, the, um, the glory of God here. And so this looks like a godly move by Eli, but I would say that it's incomplete. It's incomplete. On the part of Eli, it is incomplete because the reason I know that is because God is not pleased. Verses 27 through 36. God is not pleased. Notice what God does here when He speaks to Eli through a prophet. He says in the second part of verse 27, Eli, did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? And did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to my priests to go up to my altar to burn incense to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Okay, so obviously the implied answer for all those are what? Yes, I did do that. And the point of all those is to say, Eli, I've given you great privilege. right? Like we talked about this morning in Romans 3. You have great privilege, Eli. It went back hundreds of years ago. Right? And, and yet, what have you done with that? Now, God exposes Eli's sin in verse 29. And this is what we need to understand in order to see that Eli's not free from guilt here, even though he approaches his, sin, his sons about their sins. Verse 29. Here's God speaking through the prophet, the man of God. 
He says, Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling and honor your sons above me by making yourself fat with the choices of every offering of my people Israel? Here, God exposes Eli's sins. Eli, you have scorned the offerings that I have set up within this tabernacle. You are the final guard for for what is good here in this tabernacle. You know, the worshiper can come and he can have an idea of how he wants to worship, but you're supposed to be the final guard to say, no, that's not going to happen in this place, like you did with what you thought was going on with Hannah, right? You thought she was drunk, so you, you went and talked to her. That's you, Eli. You're responsible to guard the offerings here. And yet, in this case, Notice what he says there in verse 29. In the middle of the verse. You've not done what I've commanded you, and you honor your sons above me. You honor your sons above me. Eli, your sin is not that you failed to rebuke your sons. You did rebuke your sons. Eli, your sin that you didn't go far enough. It was an incomplete rebuke because you should have removed them from the office of the priesthood. They have defied me and they have made a mockery of what is most important to me is what God is saying. And I put that on you, Eli. Not that they're not, again, not accountable or responsible for their sin. They're going to experience the consequences of the sin. The sons are. But God says, Eli, you carry some of the weight of that responsibility as well. Because you honored your sons above me. You didn't want to receive reproach from your sons. And so you didn't rebuke them. You you didn't remove them, I should say. You only rebuked them. And so God promises trouble for Eli in verses 30 to 36. First, he reviews the promises that applied to Eli... He said, I had made this promise in verse 30. I did say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But here's what I say now. He says in the middle of verse 30, Far be it from me. That's not going to happen anymore. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me, Eli, you have despised me, in honoring your sons above me, will be lightly esteemed. And behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house that there will not be an old man in your house. You will see the distress of my dwelling in spite of the good that I do for Israel and an old man will not be in your house forever. And yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grieve and all the increase of your house will die in the prime of your life, of their life. And this will be a sign to you that will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, on the same day, both of them will die. Now, this is a little bit of a tricky conversation that the man of God, speaking on behalf of God, is having with Eli. Because he says, listen, I promised to you, God is saying, that Eli, your house would last forever. This priesthood, he's not talking about a physical house. It's going to be made of really uh, you know, good bricks or something. That's not the idea. But this family line of yours will last forever. That's the idea. But then he, go, he says in the middle of the verse, but far be it from me. That's not going to happen anymore. Why? Is God going back on His promise? And I would say to you the same thing that we could say about the Mosaic Covenant. Right? 
what did God promise in the law of Moses? That they would receive the land, that they would receive rest, right? That they would receive peace. And yet, God hasn't given that to them. So, so what are we saying? We're saying God's not faithful to His promise? What happened there? See, what we have there is a conditional promise. That is, God entered into that agreement. It was a two-sided agreement. saying God's saying, I will keep my end of the agreement so long as you keep your end of the agreement, which was to obey me and to love me with all of your heart. Well, did that happen with Israel? So God's free to remove Himself from His end of the Mosaic Covenant. Now, there is um, a, we could say, ratified covenant that God's bringing into effect through the person of Jesus Christ. That's the new covenant. It's still coming. And He will eventually give Israel rest and peace and the land. Okay, but, but, um, but as far as the Mosaic Covenant, God is off the hook. That's what's going on here. Apparently, this promise to Eli that your house, Eli, is going to last forever. You're going to have a priesthood in your family forever. was conditional based on this honoring of him. Notice the second part of the verse again, verse 30. Far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. So, when he makes that claim, he's basically saying, this is what we agreed to. I would make a priest in your family forever. I would make your family line continue forever so long as you honored me. So when Eli steps out of line, God sets him aside for someone else. So Eli had despised God and God was free to humble or humiliate him. And he was free to remove himself from his end of the bargain. God makes an amended promise in verses 31 to 36. It says, Death is coming to your family, Eli, but not all of your family. Some of you are going to witness some of the trouble that comes, including your two sons dying. Verse 35, God's going to raise up a faithful priest. He says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul, and I will build him an enduring house, and he will walk before my anointed always. That phrase, my anointed, is in uh, probably most likely the, the idea of my Messiah. That's the same word in the Hebrew that's used for Messiah. So, he will walk before my Messiah. God's going to raise up a priesthood that would would be established forever. And then in verse 36, Eli's remaining family will beg for bread from that priest. So we have the fall of Eli, which is the primary focus of the last part of this chapter, but we also have the verses I skipped over, the rise of Samuel as God's priest. The rise of Samuel. We skipped over those verses, but I hope you saw the ebb and flow as we read through the text at the beginning that the priesthood of Eli and his family is declining while the priesthood of Samuel is rising. It's the same thing that's going to happen, by the way, the same sort of idea with, with Saul and David, right? Saul's going to be declining in favor before God and he's going to have the Spirit of God removed from him and then David's going to be ascending at the same time. They're kind of crossing paths. Well, this is the same idea here with the priests as well. Samuel's rising in favor with God. Verse 11 Samuel stayed at the tabernacle to learn the responsibilities of the priesthood. And there's going to be a progression that we see here. First, 
Samuel, in verse 11, is ministering to the Lord, notice, before Eli the priest. So, in some sense, he's underneath the, the authority of Eli the priest. But notice in verses 18 to 21, Samuel takes on a higher role, even apparently as a young boy. Now, Samuel was ministering, notice, before the Lord. That sounds very familiar to verse 11. But here, in verse 18, as a boy wearing a linen ephod. This linen ephod is a way that the priest would be able to directly communicate with God. Remember, this is before they had the completed Scriptures. So, in order to find out what God is saying, yes or no, how do you, what is your will, they would use this ephod, where they would have, uh, on the front of it, on the chest, they would have the twelve stones for the twelve tribes of Israel. And inside the front pocket, they would have um, two rocks. One was probably dark and one was white. And it was um, the, uh, the Urim and the Thummim or the Yodim and the Thumim, which are basically two rocks that would determine uh, what God's will was in a certain case. So apparently the, the priest would ask God a question and reach in and find out what he would say, yes or no. Do you want me to attack the Philistines? And the priest would reach in and, and so on. And apparently, see, Samuel now moves to a higher role where he's not just a servant of Eli, but here in verse 18 he's actually wearing the linen ephod, able to speak to God directly in that way. In verses 19 and 20, Samuel's mom cares for Samuel, and Eli prays that God would bless her. And the Lord hears that prayer in verse 21 and responds by blessing her with five children. And then look at the last part of verse 21. And the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. And then skip down to verse 26. Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with men. This is the same way that our Lord is described as a young man as well in Luke chapter 2, verse 52. And Jesus grew in stature and in favor with God and men. This is a, a, um, this is a positive way of speaking about a person who's seeking to follow God. And that's Samuel. So we have the fall of Eli, or the decline, we could say. It's not completely the fall yet. But the decline of Eli and the rise of Samuel. And that will become more clear in the chapters ahead. Let me leave you with three points of application tonight from 1 Samuel chapter 2. Number one, learn from Eli's sons and don't meddle in sin. Okay, don't dabble in sin. In other words, the sin that you commit needs to be turned from. It needs to be repented of. Don't meddle in sin. Don't buy into the lie of the devil that says, you know, God's going to look the other way with my sin. Don't presume upon the mercy of Christ as if it will always be there. You know, when, when I'm ready to turn back to God, He'll be there with arms wide open, ready to forgive because I know my God. My God is the God who's slow to anger and abounding in love. And so I can keep blatantly sinning against God and at some point, I will repent. And at that point, God's going to be ready to forgive. And I think that is true. God is ready to, to forgive anyone who comes to Him humbly. So don't, don't fail to come to Him humbly when God prompts you through His Spirit. 
But think about it this way. What makes you so confident in your own flesh that you, while shaking your fist in the face of God, saying, I will sin as I please. I will commit this high-handed sin. The high-handed sin, by the way, for us is simply, I know exactly what I need to do, and yet I'm not doing it. Or I know exactly what I shouldn't be doing, and I'm doing it. That's a high-handed sin before God. What makes you think that as you're committing a high-handed sin, that that pride somehow is going to melt away at some point and you're going to be softened to a place where you want to come back to God? See, you're putting confidence in yourself and your own flesh. Has God given you a window to come to Him and repent? And don't fail Him. Don't turn from Him. Don't continue in your sin. You might think you're good enough to repent on your own power and on your own timing, but friends, sin is serious. And if you play with fire, you will get burned. And the longer that you resist God's will, the more likely you are to be consumed by the lusts of your own sins. The more you resist the call of the Spirit to come back, Turn from your sins and repent. The more you reject that, the quieter He becomes. To the point where He says, I'm done calling. Romans 1, Now I'm giving you over to the lusts that you want to commit. That's your judgment. Don't resist God's will once again. Do you see a blatant sin that you are committing? that has not been repented of and that you continue to commit and enjoy, turn from it today. Again, you come to God. You humble yourself before Him. He will accept you. He will respond to you. That's what 1 John 1.9 promises us. But if you think, hey, it's, I'm going to do that later. Okay, I'll just commit this one more time. You know how that works, right? One more time, and then what happens? That's not enough. Okay, one more after that. See, God hasn't judged me yet, so I'll just go one more. And I'll continue a little bit longer. Dangerous. Don't meddle in sin. Number two, don't overlook unrepentant sin in the lives of other believers. Don't overlook the unrepentant sin. Okay, key word there, unrepentant sin in the lives of others. That is, other believers, no matter how bad the consequences. There's lots I could say about this, but let me, let me just say a few things. First, we like the idea of professionalism in the church. That is, if we see unrepentant sin in, in someone else's life, then we go to the professional, right? The one who's paid for that, and he can take care of it. So, let me just say to you very straightforwardly because I believe in the power of the Spirit at work in each one of you as believers. Okay, When you come to me and say, you know, I noticed a specific sin that another member is engaging in and I was wondering what you wanted to do about that. Or kind of, uh, now it's in your court. You handle that sin. Hey, I saw the sin in someone else. Now you take care of that. When, when you come and say that to me, here's how I will respond. What have you done about it? You're the one who noticed the sin. Obviously, you're concerned about the sin. 
You have the Spirit of God living in you. Why don't you go to that person directly? See? The reason we don't like to approach people about their sin is because several reasons, but one is there are real consequences that come from exposing someone else's sin, aren't there? Real consequences. The most severe might be a punch in the face, right? We say, hey, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. This is against the Scripture. Let me show you. And pop. Right? Could be more severe than that, I suppose. But more likely, that's not what's going to happen. And more likely, it's going to be rejection and potentially a loss of friendship. And we don't want to risk those things in order to expose someone else's sin. But do you know what we're saying when we do that? We're saying, we honor you, sinning member, over God. Isn't that what Eli, isn't that what the man of God said to Eli? Eli's like, I don't want to risk all the potential consequences that come from me exposing my son's sins. And if I tell them that they can't be a priest anymore, do you know what they're going to do to me? And God's saying, you know what the problem is, Eli? You honor them. You love them more than you love me. And that's the same thing that's true about us when we fail to approach other people about their sin. We honor them above God. Now, another potential obstacle to us approaching someone on their sin is that we believe strongly in love. You might be thinking, even as I said, you know, what kind of unrepentant sins are going on and that you should approach somebody on them. You might be thinking, well, how can I deal with a person's sin and still be loving? Because the most loving thing I can do to them is to leave them alone, right? Because love covers over a multitude of sins. Biblical or Chinese proverb? Which one is it? You want to know? It's biblical. It's a proverb that's in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Love covers over a multitude of sins. So how can I go to this unrepentant believer and show them their sin? That's not loving. I need to cover it. Just ignore it. Let it go. But I think what Peter had in mind there, and what I think God has in mind when it comes to love covering over a multitude of sin, is love covers over a multitude of offenses, or I would say repented sins. There's no love in ignoring unrepentant sin. That's not love. That's hate. So don't let people scare you away from correcting them because, you know, they'd rather receive love from you instead. To allow them to continue in their blatant, outward, serious, and unrepentant sin is hatred in one of its worst forms. That's hatred. So we don't let them continue in their sin when they are unrepentant about it. We don't cover it up. We expose it. That's why Jesus says, hey, when you see the sin, go to them. They repent. It's done. Okay, that's the covering part. They've repented. It's covered. But if they don't repent, what do you do? You hide it some more? No, expose it a little further. Bring a couple people with you. And now, hey, this is your sin. You need to repent. They repent. Cover it up. It's done. If they don't repent, do we hide it some more? No, we open it up more. 
say, listen, church, you realize what this person's doing? They've been approached by their sin, about their sin and they haven't done anything about it. And then if they repent, we cover it. Done. But if they don't repent, we expose it more, don't we? That is the most loving thing we can do to a person who is blinded by their sin. We expose it. So don't under- overlook unrepentant sin in the lives of other believers, no matter how bad the consequences. Now, there is a proper way to approach that. There is a loving... You know, we, we need to speak the truth in love. You know, you don't just kind of come in with our billboard or, or our um, chalkboard full of um, all, all of everybody's offenses. Here's kind of what I see today. So why don't you guys come over here. Let me show you all your sins that you've committed. Hey, there is a loving way to handle all that. And we also need to make sure that we look at ourselves first, right? Because we've got to be careful about taking the beam out of someone else's eye while we still have... Uh, or, I'm sorry, take the speck out of someone else's eye while we have this huge beam in our own eye. So there is a proper way to do it. But but punting, okay, to use a football term, punting is not an option. Okay, we need, we need to go. Go for it. God requires us to. If we show any love for our God and His glory and any love for our church, then we are serious about sin, particularly unrepentant sin. Number three, God is the silent author of the grandest story. God is the silent author of the grandest story. The intended contrast between the sons of Eli and Samuel are meant to show us that God is already at work to provide for His people with a man who will speak on behalf of Him and who will be a proper representative for Him. God's already at work. God doesn't have to wait for someone to, to, to get together and do a brainstorming session and say, you know, what should we do about this, this trajectory of Israel? You know, it seems to be in decline. What should we do about it? God's already at work, isn't He? He already is raising up Samuel in the background. I, I think there's much application we can make for our own country. You know, you think God's kind of waiting for people to brainstorm and figure out what to do next? No, you think God knows exactly what to do. God has already been working in the background. And He's not afraid of, of the, the future. We should not be either for our trust is in Him. This is the nature of how God often works. Silently and in the background. Now, not always. Okay, Read through the Old Testament. You see that He doesn't work always silently and in the background. He's sometimes way out in front and very loud and lots of miracles and so on. But often, especially in our day, God is working silently and in the background. Sure, we love to see Him answer prayers in powerful ways when no one else can be given the credit for it, like when Hannah has her womb opened. She's able to give birth to a son. But most often, God is unseen unseen in His dealings among believers. That is, with natural eyes. We just can't see that God is at work. And so, when it feels like God is far away or unconcerned, recognize that He's not far away and that He is still working for His glory. That's what He's doing here in the book of Samuel. It, it seems to be that the world is falling apart, but, but God somehow is working in the background to bring about exactly what He want, wants, a, a king, a priest, someone who would lead to the very person of Jesus Christ, where His Son would come 
and be the Savior of the world. God is the silent author of the grandest story. We, sh- we can be confident in His dealings in our lives as well. All right, let's pray. Father, I pray that our church would be serious about sin, more serious than Eli was about sin. It's, it's good to see that Eli was concerned about sin and that he rebuked his sons, but, but we know that you were not pleased because it was incomplete. And so we want to be complete in our dealings with sin. Or we, we do not wish uh, this upon any one of us. We, we do not take pleasure in, in exposing sin, but we know that it's, it's for good. It's, it's in order to protect the flock as a whole. It's, order, it's in order to protect your glory. Lord, we are representatives of you, and we don't want to take lightly our responsibility and and the way in which we we shine for you. We don't want to to give a bad image to the world around us, the people that know us, and even the people in this church. We want to we want to reflect you properly, and so that requires us to be serious about our own sin, not to meddle in it, not to dabble in it, not to presume upon your grace that it's going to be there down the road, but that we fall on you for mercy every day. And then, Lord, also it means that we must be serious about the sins of others as well. Give us humility as we deal with one another in love. Help us to do it with uh, attitudes of compassion and care as we would want to be treated when we have uh, hidden sin, unrepentant sin. Lord, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name.